In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Relax and make yourselves comfortable. This one's going into overtime. In seminary, our homiletics professor told us this. I hope you understand you each have the capacity to be a crushing bore. Beyond boredom, there are more serious ways for a sermon to go astray. From my sermon of two weeks ago, I'll name two. First and worst, I sent good people away from this church wondering if they were welcome here. That marks a low point in my ministry of preaching. Second, I might have left you wondering if I would stand up for right when standing up is called for, or rather, pass it by as the priest passed by the man who had fallen among thieves along the road to Jericho. Putting it mildly, that sermon was an errant drive. May I have a mulligan? Through the centuries, the words still ring. A man went down to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him, hurt him, leaving him half dead. A priest and a Levite saw him in distress but passed him by. And then, in King James English, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Which of these, asked Jesus, proved neighbor to the man and loved him? Remarkably, Jesus had just recently been shunned by Samaritans who rejected his teaching. He'd spent a night out in the cold because none of them would take him in. That he would now use a Samaritan for purposes of illustrating love shows the wideness of his vision. As you've heard me say of faith, love has three dimensions. Belief, desire, and willful action. When I believe that your happiness and health are as important as my own, when I desire it, when I take steps to help you find it, then I love you. The steps may range from prayer through making chicken soup to enacting legislation. You've also heard me say that as a priest, I'm not outwardly political. It is an old-fashioned way of doing ministry. Growing up, I saw it in my father as a priest of bishop, as a priest and bishop, and learned it by osmosis. I'm proud of him, and through my life, I've been inspired by his example. As corrective to my sermon of two weeks ago, I'll tell you more about that. Even at home, Dad played his political cards close to his vest. 
This was in strong contrast to my mother and most of his six children, myself certainly included. I blasted my opinions through a bullhorn. Mom probably knew, but we children had to guess who Dad was voting for for president. It was not that he was apolitical. From the head of the dinner table, he would lead us in nightly discussions of the news and issues of the day. And faith, he taught us, bears strongly on our understanding of these issues. But with rare exceptions, he would stop just short of taking sides. Rather, he'd listen carefully to our opinions and offer thoughtful, measured comments. Have you thought about this? He'd ask. Don't be so self-righteous, he would admonish me. Seems like I heard that a thousand times from Dad. A few years ago at a seminary meeting, I recognized Paul Moore, retired Bishop of New York. Through my father's era in the House of Bishops, Bishop Moore had been a leading voice of liberal, politically engaged Christianity. I went up to introduce myself. I'm Chris Keller, Bishop Moore. You knew my father. He smiled. I knew him well, he said, and with great respect. It was funny. We could never peg him as conservative or liberal. Dad would smile at that. He liked not being peggable. If that sounds timid or complacent, my father's ordained life was the opposite of that. As events unfolded, he was as brave as we come in black shirts and collars and a great change agent through a turbulent time. Dad was among the first bishops to ordain a woman to the priesthood. On January 30th, 1977, he made Peggy Bosmeyer priest on these steps. Because he knew what a call to the priesthood looked like, he saw it in Peggy, and that was that. Reaching farther back, on June 16th, 1963, Dad led St. Andrew's Church in Jackson, Mississippi in welcoming four black women who'd been turned away from other churches. It was the Sunday after Medgar Evers' murder, and the whole world was watching Jackson. The women's welcome at St. Andrew with a photograph was front-page news in the New York Times. In that day's sermon, Dad preached on love of neighbor. He said, we live in times of amazing progress in technology, shooting astronauts and rockets into outer space with plans for going to the moon. But on the ground, in relations with our neighbors, we're stuck. We're still in horse and buggy days. We need more love, he said. In Christ, we're called to progress there above all else. I'm working from memory, but that's the gist. After church, as the four women left, he warmly smiled and shook their hands and said, I hope you'll come again. He said it like he meant it, wrote Ann Moody in her book, and I began to have a little hope. Love will always be, to some extent, an uphill climb for human beings. We are organic spirits, not machines. As organisms, we are moved by appetites, including a strong instinct for survival. 
Aquinas called that instinct good, but the lion's instinct is that at odds with the zebras that she's chasing. Such natural forces are at work in human beings. Happily, natural instinct also drives us to compassion. Side by side with the urge to flee or fight, a drive towards common decency is in us. Something in us wants to be the Good Samaritan. We see examples of this daily, but would you like to know where I learned it academically? In my dissertation research, I read a book by an evolutionary biologist named Joan Roughgarden of Stanford University. Against the old assumptions that evolution is driven solely by a competitive drive towards survival of the fittest, Professor Roughgarden shows evolutionary benefits in social cooperation. You might be interested to know that Joan Roughgarden's first name initially was Jonathan. She transitioned from male to female, taking her new name on her 52nd birthday in 1998. Compassion is also in our blood. But there is more to love than instinct. As organic beings, we are also spirits. Spirit lives in the blend of thinking, feeling, and willing that make up faith and love. It guides them down a pilgrim path that leads finally to God. On that path, the spirit sometimes has to wrestle with organic stuff that points to different destinations. We stray right and left or walk in circles. Patiently, persistently, the spirit recalculates our course. Here's your new route to your destination. The body politic is organic too, and sometimes wild as lions and zebras. At the moment, that's the feeling. But since the space race, I have seen it guided by the spirit to two almost miraculous historical achievements. First, in the way black folk, through determined peaceful action, revolutionized the South, overcoming murderous resistance. And then in the way gay Episcopalians changed our church, including me, by standing firm on their integrity and demonstrating faithful love in action. By comparison with many churches, this cathedral is politically, economically, and socially diverse. I love that. I think we all do. To a small extent, our diversity attests the wideness of Christ's vision. St. Andrew's Jackson in the 1960s, as I recall, it was more homogenous, a picture of the Old South and its upper reaches. Dad's predecessor, Edward Harrison, had spoken out courageously for racial justice. Some loved him for that. My late best friend, Richard Milwee, a student at Millsaps, became an Episcopalian because of Edward Harrison. But many told him he should wise up and pipe down. He left Jackson in a storm. After that intense period of parish conflict, Dad's arrival came as a relief to everyone. He seemed the antithesis of Edward Harrison. 
But when people would graduate him for that, Dad would decline the compliment. He had been a farmer, and he used this metaphor. In the spring, the first step after laying rows was to use a deep plow to bust the middles, turning up weed roots and mixing soil. After that came planting seeds and gentler forms of cultivation. Edward Harrison, Dad said, had done deep plowing at St. Andrews, making his own calm form of reconciling ministry possible. There are varieties of ministries and gifts, as St. Paul taught us in the One Spirit. After the events of June 1963, St. Andrews basked in the glow of its accomplishment. Not many Southern churches had earned good coverage in the New York Times. A congregation with many conservative members had held together through momentous change. They trusted their rector. They knew he loved them. They prayed as one. Then in 1965, that unity was tested. A group from the north came calling, the Episcopal Society for Cultural and Racial Unity, known as ESCREW. On the church spectrum, ESCREW was far left. More deep plowing down in Mississippi was their aim. Dad was concerned their tactics were more likely to hurt than help in Jackson. But when they asked to hold their closing service at St. Andrews, he said yes. They were fellow Episcopalians, and that was that. The event was intensely publicized. The Jackson Clarion Ledger editorialized against my father for hosting outside agitators. At the office, he got threatening calls and letters. One night at home, I answered the kitchen phone and got an obscene earful. I said, Dad, I think it's for you. (laughs) The vestry arranged police protection for our family. Would the parish hold together? The conference began. Dad had been invited to serve on a panel. In those discussions, when things were said that he disagreed with and regarding tactics, they often were, he made his points respectfully and firmly. Have you thought about this? He'd ask. It came time for the closing service at St. Andrews, 7.30 on a Sunday morning. Dad encouraged parishioners to come to early church that day as a show of hospitality. And thus it was that a large throng of East Coast, West Coast liberals, black and white, and Old South white Episcopalians, Samaritans, these two groups were, to one another, came together for Sunday fellowship and prayer. Everyone remembers Tom and Betty Scott. That weekend, Tom and Betty, two of St. Andrew's leaders, were in Washington, D.C., for a National Chamber of Commerce ball. Tom was chamber president for the United States. They left the ball to catch a plane to Jackson, flying through the night, showing up for church with Tom still in his tux and Betty in her evening gown to show support. The the church was full and the service joyful. It ended with everybody crossing hands and singing, We Shall Overcome. 
My mother remembered a parishioner meeting my father at the door with a radiant face, full of emotion. I'm free at last, he said. My family remembers those five years in Jackson as some of the best of our lives. A fond memory for me was my little sister's favorite friend. As best girlfriends go, there has never been a tighter pair than those two. Their life was grins and giggles all the time. Every weekend, one was in the other's home. She was a cute, cool kid in my eyes, too. I loved to see her coming through the door. Then Dad was elected bishop, and we moved to Arkansas. With time, the friends lost touch completely. Decades passed. Then one day, my sister got a call at home in Boston from her old friend who was in town. Could they meet for lunch? When they met, my sister learned her friend was now a man. He told a long, hard story, including thoughts of suicide and years of drugs to cover pain. As a man, he'd finally found peace. He hoped that he and my sister, now reconnected, could be friends. My sister beamed, and with open arms and from the bottom of her heart, she said, of course, best friends forever. That was that. That response is more than friendly. It is holy. It springs from belief that our neighbor's health and happiness is as important as our own, and from joy that she, now he, had found it and from the will to do our part to make it so. This is love of neighbor. This is life in Christ. 